This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. And welcome to episode 28 of Misdirected Mark Plays. Tonight we discuss plot points in the Cortex tabletop role-playing game. But first, my name is Jerry and not the evil Jerry this week. My name is Phil. I'm Chris. And I am old man Logan. That has yet to be seen, by the way, Jerry. We'll find out how evil you are this evening. It's like Schrodinger's Jerry. Schrodinger's Jerry. Jerry. He is evil Jerry. <laughs> Won't know he until we observe Jerry. it. Jerry. Um, and do we have any announcements? Yeah, I think we should talk about a few other podcasts that we work on outside of this show. Oh, yeah. Please do. And uh, by we, I mean everybody but me. Oh, okay. Well, in coffee-flavored horror, uh, Chris, our friend John, and I discuss horror movies, and we talk about the good, the bad, the horrifying, and the horrifyingly cheesy. Yeah, yeah. So if you, uh, if you want to be uplifted and sad at the same time, I work on a podcast called Game on Glio, which is all about glioblastoma, which is brain cancer. I'm very fond of working on the show. The stories are very uplifting. We are in season three. I have uh, the episode cool. six is released and it's a lot of conversations with people who are thrivers and people who are doctors that work on this stuff. So people we, we live in Buffalo, New York. We have Roswell and mm-hmm. uh, episode one is actually with one of the leading doctors about this particular cancer in the country. So if you are interested in stuff like that, and also a lot of people who run foundations, the cool. most recent episode was about Stash Strong Foundation, which I'm very fond of. It's a interesting story because the, the brother who's still alive that is running the foundation the, the brother who passed away was still alive when the foundation got started and partook in it, which is unusual. So it's a, it's a really cool story. So and, they're uh, all uplifting stories? They, they, yeah, generally. It's, it, that's how it works. The, the host of the show, her name is Shannon. Her husband died of glioblastoma, so she is able to relate to a lot of these folks who have these, uh, these, these issues and these uh, situations that have come upon them, unfortunately. What about you, Phil? Uh, Pandas Talking Games, you know, that thing that Senda and I do where people uh, write in and ask us to talk about some aspect of gaming, be it uh, playing, game mastering, uh, game mastering tips, problems, challenges, that kind of thing. And then uh, we figure out some answers and apply our vast experience, our decades of playing role playing games and honestly about a decade of giving advice. So, yeah, kind of pool that all together to try to help people play more better games. All right. Well, those are our announcements for the week. We will uh, move now into the garage. Access granted. There are a lot of games these days that have a meta currency of some sort. It's something that you can spend to affect the game in some sort of way. That's a meta currency. Think about fate points and fate, inspiration in D&D, but uh, honestly, hero points, I think, are the better mechanic in that game. Stress and blaze in the dark. It's a bit different, but uh, as far as its implementation goes, but it functions in the same space. XP and Cypher. The Force Points in Fantasy Flight Star Wars games, and those are just the ones I could think of while putting this together. These meta-currencies have become a game design staple and something I imagine many designers consider when they are putting a game together. Cortex and its plot point was one of the early games that gave us a meta-currency, and I believe the plot point has evolved into one of the better ones that exists out there. So let's talk about plot points. So first, what is a plot point? Like I said, they are the currency a Cortex Prime game runs on. This currency is a way for the players, and that includes the Game Master, to affect the game beyond the dice roll. Now, Cortex Prime lets you use plot points in a variety of ways, which I'm going to get into, but first, I want to talk about GMs. The GM has two pools of plot points, the bank and the pile. So, the bank is a number of plot points equal to the number of PCs, which the GM gets at the beginning of each session. 
Now, these plot points are used for three things. One, keeping GMCs in fights. Two, including more results in their dice rolls. And three, activating SFX. Now, the bank is shared by all the GMCs and can be regained in some of the same ways the PCs get their plot points. If any of that didn't make sense, I'll be explaining more in a moment since the PCs can do the same three things plus many more. Now, the pile is an unlimited number of plot points the GM can use to give to the players when the players activate SFX, which provide a plot point, or they roll hitches and the GM wants to buy them. So now that we know what the GMs have access to, let's talk about the players. First, players begin each session with at least one plot point. If they had more than one plot point at the end of the previous session, they do carry them over. Now let's talk about what you can spend them on. Here is the basic list. Activate an SFX, add more dice, activate an opportunity, create a relationship, create a temporary asset, include more results, interfere in a contest, keep an extra effect die, share an asset, stay in the fight. Now that I've dropped the list, let's delve into what each of these mean. Activate an SFX. We've mentioned these three letters a few times, this SFX, and they're supposed to be powers, special effects, and things like that that the players possess. Sometimes they require a plot point to activate and get the benefit of. In our Children of the Shroud game, Bob's character Gunny has an SFX associated with his leaf on the wind distinction. It's spend a plot point to step up any one mana pool die when using the movement martial magic feature. So he spends a plot point and gets a benefit that's outside of the basic use. Not every S effect works this way, but the ones where you spend a plot point are specifically for this kind of functionality. This is also something a GMC can do from the bank. Add more dice. You can add another trait from a trait set you've already utilized for a dice pool you're building. For instance, if I've already added my geek die to an attack when I'm building a die pool, I can then turn around and add my jock to it as long as I explain that I'm trying to muscle my way through by spending one plot point. Activate an opportunity. So we've talked about hitches, that's when a 1 is rolled on a die. If the GM rolls a 1, it's called an opportunity, and the players can spend a plot point to activate opportunities. When a player does activate an opportunity, they can either step down an existing complication on the board somewhere, or step up an existing asset. Create a temporary asset. Just spend a plot point and create something in the scene that is an asset at D6. So if you spend two plot points, it becomes an asset for the rest of the session. Instead, you could also spend a second plot point to make it usable by your allies in the scene. It's a very nice, flexible use of the plot point and gives you a lot of creativity as a player at the table. Now, this flexibility and creativity comes with some amount of responsibility. You're expected to create things that align with the setting and situation of your game. There is no creating a laser pistol D6 in your fantasy setting, unless you're going to go for that Expedition to the Barrier Peaks vibe, or, you know, you just like being that person. Please don't be that person. Be better than that person, I'm begging you. Just make the Wand of Lightning, it's the same functionality. Also, the GM and the players, especially if I'm one of the players at that table or the GM, is going to tell you no, because, you know, play inside the game. All advice and silly thoughts aside, the next thing I want to bring up is create a relationship. Now, this is only used if you are using the relationship trait set in play, and it does the same thing as create a temporary asset at D6, except the relationship sticks around until the end of the session, and that's only for that one plot point. Also, if you spend some XP or growth, those are two mods for advancement, the relationship can then become permanent. When it comes to relationships that you are creating this way, you also can't spend an extra plot point to make it usable by everyone. That relationship is just for you. Include more results. This allows you to spend a plot point after you roll to add another die to your total. You can do this as many times as you want on a roll as long as you have the plot points to spend and dice to add in. This is also something a GMC can do from the bank, I mentioned it earlier. Interfere in a contest. If you want to interfere in a contest that's already underway, you can spend a plot point to join in. 
I talked about this in our previous primer, and it's worth saying we don't use this version of the rule in our Children of the Shroud game when it comes to dueling. Keep an extra effect die. This one's simple enough. You spend a plot point and use a die that hasn't been used yet from your dice pool to add another effect die to inflict stress, create a complication, or create another asset on the table. Stay in the fight. When you will be taken out, you may spend a plot point to take a complication instead. The size of the complication is equal to the effect die of the opposing dice pool. This is also something a GMC can do from the bank. And it's, like I said, a way to stay in the fight. And that's how you get these weird complications on the uh, table. Like, well, I have been wounded like D10. Now that we know how to spend them as a player, let's talk about how to get them. Complications. Roll a 1, and the GM gives you a plot point to create a complication. This complication's at D6, but multiple 1s can be used to generate larger complications. If, say you roll three ones, it would be a d10 complication. Conversely, it could also be three d6 complications if they gave you three plot points. Give in during a contest. If you give in during a contest, you get a plot point. You'll need to have at least rolled one time before giving in during that contest, otherwise you've just given them what they wanted without having to provide any opposition. SFX, especially hinder. Some SFX provide plot points. The hinder SFX is linked to distinctions and says, Reduce your distinction die to a d4, add it to your die pool, and gain a plot point. Role playing. You can give out a plot point for memorable moments in the game. Honestly, I'm not a fan of this one, but if you like having this kind of rule in your role playing game, it's here for you to use. Using a d4 complication in your role. Now, this is related to complications or stress if you're using that mod. Now, this doesn't count if you have a trait rated at a d4 from a trait set. And in the majority of these situations, the d4 disappears after the roll so they can't be used repeatedly. So now we know what a plot point is and how the GM and players spend them and get them. Uh, the last thing I want to mention before moving on to the roundtable is some things to consider when building your own Cortex game or making your own Cortex mods. So one, you're going to want to have a variety of ways to spend plot points. The list that's above is pretty solid, but if you decide your game doesn't mesh with one or more of the above ways to spend plot points, then consider what ways you'd like to see plot points spent and how it helps your game's themes, tone, and intended playstyles. Also, maybe think about how it might influence a table's play culture. It's kind of important, actually. You also want to have a variety of ways for PCs to gain plot points. I tend to think of three varieties of ways to get plot points. One, how a PC can get them from the GM. Two, how a PC can get them from a random occurrence. And three, how a PC can get them by interacting with the game. Now, I think the last one is the most important to consider, so I'm going to highlight that. Say you were to remove the hinder SFX from play, then there's no real way for a PC to interact with the game to get plot points. They're just relying on the GM and the randomness of the game to generate potential currency, and man, that can feel pretty unsatisfying in a lot of ways, especially when a PC just can't seem to get a plot point through the other means. That said, we still want to remove the hinder SFX, so we need to create something else. Let's decide that whenever someone initiates a contest, they gain a plot point. That will work really well for a swashbuckling musketeered style game where contests of wits and sword fights can occur constantly. Now, if we don't want to go that way, we can just say that if you were ever building a die pool and you don't have a plot point, then you get one plot point. That means that PCs will always have access to at least one plot point when they have to roll the dice. Now, I find that last design kind of weak, but it's functional for keeping plot points in the PC's hands. The last thing I want to say about this is something that Cam Banks wrote in the book. He feels that it's better to include some way the PCs can make a riskier or challenging choice, which then gains them a plot point in the process. And what that means is, please don't leave the economy to the GM to manage. 
it should be in the hands of everyone at the table. And with that, I'm done priming you folks up on plot points. It's time to head to the round table to talk a bit more about them with the rest of the guys, but first let's talk about another show on Mr. Mark Productions. Bob, take it away. We have this show called The Gnome Cast, and several gnomes from Gnome Stew get together to talk about gaming topics and themselves, and it's all in an effort to entertain you and to avoid being thrown in the stew pot. You know, me and Jared lost the stew pot for a hot second there. What? Yeah, it went missing. Uh, there was a party at the gnome tree. Don't tell Ange. We said that it was a natural disaster, but recently it was found. Like, we, uh, we found that we, we actually paid somebody to clean it up, but I was, you know, bathtub drunk in the... And I uh, couldn't Ooh, find it. Dude, you don't have too many more of those I got, like, left. I got like two left. Yeah, you got to be careful. I know, right? These people, I suppose, you know, you would be one of those guys that would go on a party boat and chuck the stew pot across to another boat without thinking about whether it's going to sink. It's true. Miss. It's true. I do have to tell you, Phil, the, the company that cleaned up the pot, they welded shut the escape hatch in the bottom. That's going to be a problem. So, I mean, just don't try it. Don't try that trick anymore. Yeah. It's, Wait, it's not there, there. There was an escape hatch? Yeah. And that's how you get out. It's the thing about the gnome stew, people don't realize, like, there's a, there's kind of a history for that stew pot and the things that have been done to yeah. it, what's happened to it. Yeah. All, All right, then. Well, would, let's... Would the vat of acid trick work in the stew pot? Uh, it, you, well, we sort of used to do that, right? Because Phil would just... pot, Phil. Yeah, he would just escape through the, the hatch. So, Phil is like the least clone gnome ever that's been around for a long time. Wait, right. you knew they were clones? Yeah. I murder my clones. Jared's got an extra clone. That's how he gets all those reviews done. He didn't, that clone like woke up early. Bob's quote right there is like a 20 year old quote from our Amber campaign. Like, <laughs> literally, I'm the only person who gets that joke. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the roundtable section. So let's get into talking about plot points. Bob, would you mind asking the first question? Why, yes. Yes, I would mind. Oh, wait. No, that's not how that's Do you want a plot point for it? Uh, yes. Give me a plot point, and I will ask the first question. I don't have any plot points. Phil, you're the game master. I didn't bring them, but I'll, I'll, I'll hit you up on All the next right. game. I'll, 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 I will consider that a plot point in arrears. If, if you will ask me a question today, I will give you a plot point on Tuesday. There you go. You, if, if you understand that joke, you should be scheduling your colonoscopy. Yes. Yes, you should. Question numero una. Sorry, uno. What the hell, Bob? What are some of your favorite uses of plot points in our Cortex games, and what made them so memorable? I don't know if I have a specific one, but I always like I always like it when I have, and when we play Ox especially, right? Like, I have some pretty good roles in that game. And so sometimes I give you guys a pretty good run for your money, and I really love when you guys roll, and then you guys are, like, looking over the dice, looking over the dice, and you're like, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to spend a plot point. I'm going to add an extra die into this. And like what seems like, oh, this is going to be like an easy, like I easily have this task. You guys wind up snatching a bunch of those out from under me by um, creative uses of, of plot points. So I always find that to be quite enjoyable. I'm rooting for you guys. I have three, three actual moments that I, uh, that I found that were fun in my, as far as favorite uses of plot points. One, I like when Phil has twice now given two people a plot point to create a complication on the table that made it difficult for both of those characters. I think that's a fun use of the plot point and fairly unique. It's not exactly in the rules. Yeah, it's not in the rules. I kind of just winged it, but I, you're right. That was cool. And we it, did it, it right on the show. It felt good at, in the moment. Yeah. So it worked. Uh, I, I think I usually cut these out, but there's a lot of times where Phil's like, I don't know if I could do this. I'm like, hey, bud, just spend one of your plot points. Yes. Add a die because it's like Phil forgets that he could do that for his GMCs a lot of the time, which is funny because I actually put a stack separate, like from the from the pile. Mm -hmm. Like I put my bank 
away from the pile and then I forget to spend them. I did not with the fight with Samia. No, I did a good, I did a good job. I did a good job because I, a couple times like really punched back hard because I was able to buy up. And my, uh, my other one was early on when we were having that fight with the uh, Lancaster legends and I created the, the ice swords that floated around and spent the plot point to make usable for everybody. Cause then everybody had ice swords that they could use to fight the Lancaster legends. I, I I enjoyed that personally. Mm -hmm. So those are my three, three moments that were some of my favorite uses of plot points in our cortex games. And just the idea of like swords flying around made was fun for me. For me, my, one of my favorite use of plot points is actually getting them in our aux game. My scientist Gree is prone to, just by the roll of the dice rolls, is constantly succeeding with complications at a number of different things. And most of his experiments tend to blow up in his face, so to speak. And <laughs> the ability to get plot points is nice because it still gives me a chance to do something else so that I can succeed at what I'm attempting but also the complications that come with it and the way that Phil uses those. Uh, and sometimes he'll just give me, a, like, I'm going to give you a plot point for that as well because I'm buying that one. You, you, rolled, you rolled a one, and I'm, I'm going to buy that. And as soon as I go to do any experiment, I can almost see the glee in Phil's eyes because by the time I get my dice pool assembled, he's out here, he knows what he's going to do when I roll that one, which is going to inevitably happen. Or if I roll five ones at once. From behind the screen, the thing is, Coming up with ones on the fly is often hard for me. So for tasks that I know are going to be in the game, mm -hmm. I prep those and I actually prep what I'm going to do for hitches. Like I have a section that says like what the difficulty is and if there's any other distinctions involved. And then I have like what is heroic success, success, failure and hitches so that I know. So in the moment, if I like something better, I'll go with it. But if I'm going to lock up and I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do with this because I want to buy your guys ones in part because it's half of it's not the complete economy, but it, it pumps the economy yeah, by buying those ones. Mm -hmm. So I like buying them. I just want to do something meaningful with them. So I sometimes prep my ones. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's not a terrible idea. No. They have some suggested uh, ideas for those. But sometimes you guys narrate something and I'm like, oh, I'll just I got a better idea. I was going to say you were about to say something. Yeah, was I that mean, the thing we, you were going to Polly, say? No, Polly came out of a giant set of ones that Phil bought with a plot point. Yep. One plot point created a whole story arc that created a sentient fungus plant thing that became an, an NPC in our crew. Yes. Yep. Like, it That's is the most glorious. organic storytelling thing that I've, one of, one of the more organic storytelling things that I've ever experienced in a role-playing game. One of game. the best parts about that was that it came out of, it was a heroic success and two ones at the same time. Mm. So that was one... I did not have written down. I think what I had written down for that, because the challenge was to go all the way back to Polly. The challenge was there was a super pollen on the planet that was giving you all allergic reactions. Yes. So Jerry's character Gree was like, I'm going to make something to combat that. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, I, and I, not that I, and I also kind of thought that's what would happen in the game. So I think what I had for written down in the prep for ones was like to give you guys some side effects. But then like Jerry rolled really bad. And I was like, Side effects, one, if I buy, because it was enough ones that I was concerned if I bought these as side effects, it was really going to fuck you guys up, right? But two, I was like, what's more interesting in this moment? I was like, no, what's more interesting is it, this this pollen fungal thing. It did mess me up. I was having problems. I was it, like, like, couldn't breathe. I think you failed to roll. Yeah, I did. You failed to roll and I bought some ones on you. You also forgot the fact that the pollen attacking the planet 
is the result of me rolling a yeah. one yes. earlier in the this game. Whole thing is I like, created the problem in the first place. Yes. Like this is this is all Jerry just botching stuff that created a whole separate problem, that created a whole separate adventure, that created a whole giant like monstrosity thing that ended up being Polly. I would like to yep. thank I would like to thank Powered by the Apocalypse for teaching me how to roll <laughs> one bad thing into another yeah, into right? another. Yep. Like that was very much a function of what move can I make here that's going to go like going to be more interesting and more terrible. And what I think is interesting about all that is that there was a series, I think, of three sessions in a row where I I either did not succeed or rolled a one on every test I attempted. Yeah. But the plot still kept going and we had a ball. Mm hmm. But a lot of games don't handle that. A lot of GMs and players don't handle that. Oh, Other man. players don't handle that well. Cortex is all about the, the, the fail forward, right? Yeah. Like yep. That yeah. is, it is like almost built into the but game. But it works. Keep it moving and yep. have fun with and, it. And there are things like when I'm setting up Cortex challenges that like, I even have to catch myself where I'm like, oh, that failure is not a stymie. That failure just means like I'm going to run up ticks on this clock or mm-hmm. this failure means like, oh, you're going to get this, but it's going to take longer than you expected. Like you're not going to get as many actions, that kind of thing. It's not even failures, too. Like it's just somebody rolled a bunch of ones. Yeah. yeah. And still succeeded. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any, Bob? Yeah, to wrap this one up, um, I, I don't have a specific moment, but my favorite of the plot point things is spending it to get the uh, asset available for everybody else to use. Yes. Yeah, like, absolutely. I, like, you, you come up with, like, oh, this is a really cool idea. I can do this thing but now I get to share it with everybody else as well. Mm -hmm. And then that stays around longer and you get more out of that one thing, which sometimes, oh, that was really cool. And then it's gone. Mm -hmm. But spending that plot point to give it to everybody. I agree. Yeah. I enjoy that. Ask the second question, Bob. Sure. How do you view plot points in the game? As in, what are your thoughts and feelings about the mechanic, whether they're positive or negative? I said in the intro, I think it's the best implementation of a meta currency in all of role playing games. I really do. Yeah. I, I don't know of one that's better. That's those are my thoughts. They're positive. I think it's great. I think it works effectively. I think every meta currency should aspire to do what this one does, which is they're not hard to get. They don't impact the game so much that they are overpowering and they are a currency that flows back and forth pretty easily. And they're fun to use. Mm-hmm. Anybody else got anything else about them? I will second what Chris said, and I think I'll add to the fact that unlike some currencies, they are not vital to situations. There are some games we've talked about where everybody hoards their currency points till the big fight, the big combat, whatever. Because of the way that plot points flow so freely in the game and the fact that players can simply take that D4 to get one when they need one means that they spend them more often, they spend them more freely. And you're not necessarily crippling yourself just to get one. And it doesn't end up with the same feeling of the only way to succeed is to sacrifice something. And so I like that overall. I think that they do a lot towards games that just make them fun. I really like the plot points and the way they're given, used, implemented, the way the GM uses them, the fact that you can buy them from the GM to do things. All of that makes it a lot of fun. So I think it's positive across the board. Yes. I will use my Patrick Swayze voice to say, ditto. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I also like them. I am, first of all, a fan of meta currency mm-hmm. in every game. I actually uh, am not a fan of games without a meta currency because it's the kind of game, and I'm thinking back to like 3-5, right? It's the kind of game where uh, without a meta currency, I feel the need to sometimes put my thumb on the scale in terms of fudging rolls. From a general standpoint, I like games that have meta currencies 
because it puts the, uh, if you're going to choose to fail this role, it's on you. You could spend points and spend your way out of this or, mm-hmm. you know, try to at least from a GM side, I don't feel obligated to tune things for drama. It's interesting. Like, so a meta currency for you as a game master means that as a player, you have all these opportunities to make your life a lot easier. So if you don't take them, that's on you. I actually, I don't, I don't think that's bad. I yeah. just think it's, I think it's a, a cool yes. kind of interesting perspective well, on the idea. Well, and I think it's probably based on where I fudge, right? So where I fudge is usually to give the players a success. So if I see like, let's say we're playing again, not to pick on three, five, but let's go with a game that doesn't have a meta currency. So let's just say we're playing iron heroes. If I see Bob, bomb like four Come on, five Come on one second let's not pick on three five let's just pick the most adjacently close three five game yeah. potentially possible exactly yes but a game that i used to play and a game that sometimes i fudge uh, fudge rules at let's say we're playing and bob misses like five six times in a row right just he's having a shitty night but he's not rolling like single digits he's rolling that like low teens that just can't get to a hit mm-hmm. I'm eventually going to just fudge one of those. I'm going to eventually just make a hit. But if Bob has a meta currency and he rolls that close thing and looks and is like, I'm going to hold on to this currency. The shot isn't as important to me. Mm -hmm. Then fine. You miss like miss all you want. But if Bob's like, I absolutely got to hit something or I haven't hit something all night. Fuck it. I'm spending a point and then gets the hit and gets the good feeling from it. Then I'm, I'm for that. So for me, that's what I love about meta currency is what meta currency does is it tells me as a GM when you guys care about a particular role, because you can just let a role go by and be like, meh, I'll roll for that later. Or nope, this means something to me. I'm going to put a point or two of this currency into it. I also like the fact that as a player, you can simply take that D4 to get another point of meta currency when you need it or want it. But that also you can narratively play with that. The idea that the optimal thing for my character would be to do X, but I'm going to take that D4. So my character's going to do this, and that explains, that's just in-game explaining why you take it. It gives you a little chance to narrate and role-play, but have it be something both mechanical and useful, but also just fun. Oh, it well, adds to the fun of the game. And I think it's actually a brilliant design. We've all played Fate, and one of the hardest jobs of being a Fate GM is in the middle of everything else is managing the economy. Yeah. Right? It, and... It is very hard to clock everybody's fate points in the middle of a game and then mentally be like, Chris is running low on fate points. I got to I got to introduce a complication that I can try to, you know, get him to buy into a compel. I got to I got to come up with a compel for Chris to buy into so I can push points to him. Whereas in Cortex and like as Chris said earlier, Chris can be like, hmm, I'm running low on plot points. I'm going to start pulling D4s for my distinction. So that I can build up a little. And I see it all the time in Ox. Early in an Ox mystery, Chris pulls D4s until he gets to a certain number of plot points. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then once he's comfortable, then he like settles in like, okay, well, now we can get working on the problem. I've got some points and I can now, when I want it to count, can spend my way into that. Okay. I I got two things that I want to cover here. One, I want to talk about the fate point Mm -hmm. and, and some of the problems with it. Two, I want to talk about the thing that you just said. The reason I do that as a player is because one, it's mechanically beneficial to me and the game actually is okay with me doing that. Sure. And two, it creates a story arc for my character throughout the session. Hell the story. Yes. Yep. It's so smart. That's yeah. what, that's why it's so smart. The game is actually encouraging you to play out a story arc for your character of making your life more complicated, more complicated, more complicated, doing that 
a way to encourage that try fail cycle with without having to push extra narrative into the thing because you're just like oh uh, i have trust issues so i'm trying to work on this but i can't really like i can't really work with anyone on this because i don't trust anybody exactly. i'm just going to take the d4 as opposed to me as a gm having to like artificially come up with something or not artificially but inject a piece of narrative into the game that's like oh would you like to do this right as i like yes. slide that fate point yeah mm-hmm. now in fate you can self-compel but i will tell you the thing that i have kind of realized about fate that makes me think that the the fate point has got some some issues i mean it's i think it's a perfectly mm-hmm. fine mechanic mm-hmm. but if i compel you often i'm giving you a mechanical benefit for some nebulous narrative yeah. complication sure that I will, as a game master, then bring its ugly head t- to roar or rear, I should say, rear. later. Now, that is not as clear cut as what Cortex does. Correct. And that's, I think, the problem that players have is like, I'm going to get my fate point, but I am giving it for an unknown detriment that is coming later. Yeah. And sometimes it's way later. And sometimes I've done it where I will require like an extra skill check you, before you can get to the thing you want. You did it to me. One time oh, when we were playing I, yes. four sessions later. Yes, like, I did. Remember that compel? I won, I'm like, I 100% I actually, back on you. I was like, I don't know that that, I, I, this is a long time ago. Yeah. This is like years ago. Like, like a decade seven, eight ago. years yeah. ago. Yes. I don't know if that's how the game works. No, like, in my head, I'm like, I don't think that's how it's supposed to go. But I'm pretty sure that wasn't correct. And it was like a signs <laughs> and portents thing Look, where man, I was <laughs> narratively. It, oh, mechanically, though, I couldn't find anything wrong with it. It just didn't feel right. It, the thing about it was, and I vaguely, and I remember doing it, but I vaguely remember the story. You did something that had not an immediate repercussion, but you did something that set in motion something much larger. Yeah. And so I gave you the fate point because I was like, oh, it's, it's a compel. Like I, got- I compelled you into like pushing, like essentially pushing a button that four sessions later opened the door to something terrible. So like, yes. And mechanically. It's actually okay, I think. I couldn't find anything that was wrong about it, right? But, like, in my head, I'm like, shouldn't I get, like, three or four more fate points now since the world just ended? Yeah, and I think the other problem with that is, like, it's the kind of thing that if done wrong, you'll never want another compel. Yeah. Because you're just like, oh, I don't know. I'm just going to have this, like, you know, sword of Damocles hanging over me. Correct. Yes. Which, good reference. Not that you know that you just did a thing, but that's totally a Dresden Files reference to where the compel came from yeah like the sword of damocles is one of the original ideas for why the compel exists in fate i totally from the dresden totally did not know that but because of the sword of damocles because it's a it's a uh, it's a it's an aspect that harry has in the role-playing game for like the early part of the game i think like on his character sheet it's on there for like early harry dresden and it gets compelled all the time in the books if you read the books you know what we're talking about now like i said i think mechanically the reason why compels are so hard for people is because it's, I get a mechanical benefit for an unknown complication that I don't know when it's coming or how it's coming. Yeah, and, that's, and it yes. feels bad. Yeah. And that's the part that was like kind of on the edge of that's, the game. That's the, I feel like I'm sacrificing something just to do something. Not only just sacrificing, if you could sacrifice and know what you're sacrificing right away, yeah. is a different thing than I am sacrificing something that could be not too bad or awful later. My better compels in games have included things like, you're trying to negotiate with the king. Sure. But the character who has can't shut my big mouth, I've compelled to butt in in the middle of the negotiation. Sure, right. Yeah. Like, and then made everything more difficult because of it. Mm-hmm. That's a much better, right? That's a immediate. But there's like an art to it, right? It's not yeah. clear cut. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's all I'm saying. Right. And, that's, and those are the differences between those two things. And that is where I get back to why I like the in cortex with the distinction is that rather than me having to like compel something and either figure out something short term or long term, you've just been your it's first of all, it's on you. Why is this distinction a problem in this moment? Right. And it's cool because then you narrate. You're like, oh, I have trust issues or oh, I am reckless when I get creative, yeah, you know, yeah. to build a solution. You're, or, you're putting it on yourself also by using the fiction of the game and your character sheet mm-hmm. and, the, and the aspects of your character. So you're, it, it, it's all way more uh, lucid and compelling. And compelling. quick. <laughs> and yeah. quick. Mm-hmm. Because, and quick, yeah. Because that problem happens in the check you're making, yep. not in an additional check or somewhere yep. down the line. It's, yeah. So you not only get the point quickly, but the game keeps moving. I will also go one step further to say in fate that actually the more beneficial thing to do anyway is wait till you're in a scene and then just create an aspect. You get an invoke or two on it and it's way better for you oh, than yeah, trying yeah. to compel yourself. Oh, yeah. No, and and yeah. other people can use it. Trade advantage is, and I've said this many, many times teaching fate, trade advantage is the secret weapon it's of the, fate. Yeah, it is also the, it's the killer app. It's actually how you're supposed to play the game. Exactly. See however many episodes when I talked about Rocklips and how Eric Simon figured that out before the rest of us in a lot of ways. And it's like, here's a game that actually just does the thing that the game's supposed to do. Our 36 <laughs> shift hit in our yeah. Rocklips yeah. game is like the best. Let's move on. So concerning plot points and the idea of them being a metagame currency, do you think they make the game more metagame than it needs to be or should be? Why or why not? I'll say no. I'll say I don't think they make it more metagame. I think they're just part of the mechanics of the game. I don't think they're any more metagame than Roll D20 or something else. I just think that as a mechanic, because the game is designed this way, they allow the characters to role play and use their special, use their abilities in more creative ways. I think they just free up the ability of the players to play the characters. That's my feeling. I don't think they're necessarily a more metagame than they need to be. I put this question together as a loaded question. This question doesn't have an actual answer. I have, yeah. I have thoughts. Go ahead. To Jerry's point, I think having the mechanic doesn't make it more or less metagamey than having to assemble the die pool and all of that stuff. I think the question I would ask is, does it increase the latency in a turn or in the, you oh, know, in yeah, the check? 100%. It absolutely does. Yes. But I also don't think that's a bad thing because, again, and I guess I should just state this. I don't have a problem with the meta aspect of gaming. I'm not an immersion player. I am a micro immersion player. I like immersion like in particular scenes. And then I'm totally fine coming back out to a game level layer and, okay. and, and doing all that stuff. Foci layer, same thing. Foci layer, cluster, thought, whatever, whatever, whatever term, we whatever use, it is. We, we all know we what We've been is. using foci lately. We've been using foci. So anyway, I'm like, I like that actually, because I'm not acting in a play, I'm playing a game and the, the rolling of dice and assembling pools and that kind of stuff is playing the game. And I, I like that. Mm-hmm. I do too. I like your loaded question. Is it more <laughs> meta game than it needs to be or should be? I usually say I'll Sean P. Kelly this. Sean P. Kelly actually doesn't do this anymore. Sean P. Kelly is very good about explaining his reasoning these sure. days because he doesn't have Brett talking over him constantly because well, that was a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I've come to find out. Listen to Sean on RPG, RPG talk on sun, Saturday mornings. It's sure. good. Anyways. It all depends on how you want to play the game. If you want to play more in the character story foci where you're not like worrying so much about mechanics, this game is terrible for you. Oh, and yeah, it's no, way too meta game. No, you should definitely not play Cortex yeah. if immersion is your. Yeah. If you like writer's table games, this game is great. Yes. I mean, we actually had that problem in a couple of our Ox games where we went for a whole session 
and rolled the dice like once each and that was it. And so as a result, we weren't generating any extra meta point. Like, you know, I, I started the game with, with one plot point for free. I ended the game with that plot point for free. Yeah. So th that happens. So I think the game works better when you are engaging. The this is a game where I think the game works better when you're actually engaging the mechanics on a fairly regular basis as part of the story. I think any game works better when you're engaging. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not denying what you're saying, Jerry. I just, I'm, I'm playing games for a reason so I can play the games. Go ahead. You should caveat that, that as long as the mechanic is good, because there are games where I avoid that rolling those dice as often as That's possible. That's true, but I don't sure, play yeah, those yeah. games. That's, this is, that isn't this game. We're talking about the difference between yes. quality. Like any game, you should be engaging with the mechanics. Well, the mechanics be procedural? And like I say a thing, I trigger a move. And that move doesn't have any dice or accoutrement to do a thing. You just go through a procedure. That's a mechanic. And yes, I engage yeah, with it. Yeah. The, the perfect example is public access. Mm -hmm. The vulnerability move. The, the nostalgia sure. move. It's yeah. a vulnerability in other games. There are no dice rolls, but it's a procedure. Now, this game has a lot of bits and stuff that take you out of the story 100%. and... Cool character layer so like i said if you don't like that then don't play, don't this, play game. this game yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with phil immersion is great in in moments and i'm not opposed to playing a game that's deep immersion in and of itself like a good story game where you know you don't have to bounce i prefer the blend i prefer like an ekg of immersion where i'm mm -hmm. up down up down sure up, down, up. yeah 100 percent. you can listen to our our game the one where we had a mechanic it, it wasn't even a mechanic it was a procedure for doing the ritual the procedure for doing the ritual was dealing with our, our BS before I could talk to Mesave. Yeah. Yeah. We actually engaged the mechanic because the mechanic of the game is Phil decides what we need to do to put the ritual together, gave us some requirements, we fulfilled the requirements, and then me and Phil had a really nice scene where mm -hmm. I was me, I was Silas, and Phil was Mesame. It was yep. really good. Yeah. Deep immersion in that moment. And, and we used the mechanic to get there. Yeah. It was a it was very little bit of mechanic. Yep. Like, you set up a thing. Yep. We had a great scene, me and the other two characters. No dice were rolled, but no it was still a mechanic. Yeah, there were still mechanics in yeah, games. absolutely. Mechanics, I think that's the thing that people get confused about sometimes, and that's why I'm going here. I mean, the, most of the listeners to this podcast are smart, and they know what we're talking about. But if you are a first-time listener or something like that, like, mechanic does not mean rolling a die. Mechanic in, can also mean engaging with the procedure. That's we, all. in the archives, to plug the, uh, to mm -hmm. plug the Patreon, in our archives... You and I, and I can't remember if it's so old that it's just you and I or if it's you, Bob, and I, we have an episode where we specifically talk about these terms, that we get very specific about procedures, mechanisms, Mechanism. and mechanics. And for us on the show, when we say mechanics, we mean m procedure, mechanism, and or any combination of the two. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's always that's always a thing. So, yeah. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I've never been... Uh, I've never been a full immersion kind of guy. Like, remember uh, Metagamers Anonymous? And I think they're still, out, I mean, they're still out there in Wichita. I just haven't heard, I just haven't listened to them in eons. Um, they're still podcasting? I'm not sure. I don't think they are. There's, they've still, I think, having their con and stuff. Oh, okay. But Tsunami con? Was that Tsunami what con, yeah. yeah. So they, um, you know, they, they prided themselves on being deep immersion groups, right? Yeah, they hated Fate because of that. Correct. And you should, because Fate's not a good immersion game at all. And Cortex isn't either. And that's a preference thing. Like, if you want yeah. a high immersion game, and I don't think D&D is, like, they were like, oh, we're D&D because it's high immersion. I'm like, well, it's definitely not less immersion than Fate, <laughs> but it's not, like, deep immersion. Like, there are games that go much deeper. Less immersion than Fate? More immersion than Fate. I'm sorry, more immersion. It's not more immersion than Fate. But, look, if you're a I magic would, user, if you're a magic user, you got your work cut out for you to, like, to stay immersed. Like, 
you've got a whole rule like bundles you have to like yeah. re- reference constantly. It's true. When if you're a fighter, as I've often played fighters, that job's pretty easy. It is. Like I can stay immersed as the fighter going to hit me a monster. Yeah, I don't I, I think powered by the apocalypse games are better for immersion than most things. Yes, but also they have that moment on the 7 to 9 where you have to pull yourself out. You do. I would love, I'll not challenge, but I will ask listeners to suggest to us deep immersive games. Because to me, I actually, again, because of how I like immersion, none of the games that we've mentioned, Powered by the Apocalypse, Cortex, etc. I like those, right? I like doing all those activities. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I wouldn't play those games. Yep. So I'm okay with it. But I'd be curious if somebody has a game that's like, this is like a, such a smooth, sleek, thin set of mechanics that it's easy to stay immersed for longer periods of time. I'm just curious. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't even know what that, that, that whole topic is, as you can see me stuttering over the word, you hear me stuttering over the words, like uh, immersive gameplay, like swords without master. Even that. That's not bad. That's not bad. It's not bad. Thin thin on the mechanics. True. And if you get really good at it and don't have to say anything, passing the dice and stuff, you can can be pretty smooth. A lot longer. Do you hear what we're saying though? So role-playing games are essentially a, this is the worst. We're deciding for this mm, yep. one. This one's actually interesting. I think this is a fascinating yeah, let's discussion. Get, let's get into it. Role playing games are primarily a audio medium. We are talking to each other. Absolutely. So when we talk about immersion, we're talking about the times that we can talk to each other without having to talk about the mechanics. Yes. Which is interesting to me because like, I think when you pick up dice and start rolling them and things like that, that is engaging mechanics and it breaks the immersion. Yeah, absolutely. So I've never understood the concept of like what people think of as immersive gaming. Yeah. I'm 100% with you, which is why many, many years ago when I was hanging out and talking to the folks at Prismatic Tsunami, I had the same thought. That whole discussion is what eventually led us to the original Layers episode. Correct. Because <laughs> remember we were, this. Because we were mm-hmm. talking about the same problem and we were talking about, well, when you pick up the dice and look at your character sheet, you're now not in your character. You're in the game. And that's how we began this whole thing of um, Layers, which we then led agreed later was foci so the reason i think D yep. is so weird when people say it, like immersive like you roll that d20 a lot a lot especially in a combat like combat is the most unimmersive situation that's ever existed in role-playing 100 yep. and and the reason we all know that is because if combat goes more than five rounds people stop role-playing now you can force people and people are sometimes well disciplined but we've all been Not in games me. We've all been in games where after a few rounds, people are just like, roll to hit 16, hit 14 damage. I'll tell you the, the secret sauce of that is at round three, if nothing has changed, change the situation. Sure. It, it just makes the game better. Sure. I don't know. I'm just throwing out. Rocks there. fall, anyway. everybody dies. No, 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 man. Like, no. oh, the floor falls out, now you're all falling. Yeah. yeah. It, it Door forces everybody to now n- start. N- yeah. Something different happened. Yes. Yeah. And now you have to start game. narrating your way through the yeah. difference. Yep. Anyways, uh, that's besides the point. I don't get immersion. Like, I don't get people talking about immersive gameplay. There's, I mean, we, we might as well just be improv acting at that point, right? Sure. We, we might as well just be yes anding each or other. Or LARPing. Yeah. Or LARPing. LARPing Again, is fine. If LARPing somebody, is. If somebody has an example that they think is, is you know, a good example of immersive role playing. Like a, you know, a, a mechanic. Like a, a system. With mechanics, a yeah. system. And not LARPing. And sure. not LARPing. Because we all agree then LARPing is no drop, par- us, drop us a message. Parlor LARPs don't count because that's yep. completely immersive gameplay. I can get in costume and just be my character for, you know, three hours. Yeah. Which is great because if fun. that's the thing Super you want to do, yeah. rock it out. I've, rock it. I've been dying to do some of that stuff. Sure. Wait, 
One of these days. Don't worry. Sunday will get here eventually. I know. And then I'll have somebody that I can plan parlor LARPs with. And then, 100%. And then Bridget will play. And it'll, I'm sure Jerry will want to maybe possibly jump in on that and, and probably Phil. So, you know, it'll be good. We'll have, we'll have like a parlor LARP group that can play like once or once every month or so. Absolutely. Uh, th- we got about three years. Yeah. Okay. Just hang on. Cool. Let's move on to the next question. Next question. Do you think our mana pool die system in Children of the Shroud infringes on the plot point system? Or does it help define magic as being different? And why do you feel that way? I like asking these hard questions. Yeah. I know Bob asked it, but I wrote it. That, that's not a hard question at all. I don't think it infringes on the plot point system. I think that what it does is it simply gives us a way to add one or more extra set of dice in. And that because of the way magic works and the fact that you can get magic dice back by being in a duel and the fact that they renew themselves, I don't think that, that infringes on it at all. Is it another sort of meta currency? Kind of. It's like a half meta currency because it does go down and then renew itself. I think it does make magic feel different than just a regular dice roll. So, yeah, I think that there's, that's my answer. I'm going to echo what Jerry said and add on to it that I think that one, um, it does make it feel more powerful than mundane stuff because you can pump in some extra dice into your dice bowl. Mm-hmm. But also, Chris, as you are um, very fond of noting, there is a point of diminishing returns in terms of how big your dice pool should be. And this is the thing I like about Cortex, because we're not using the mod where you just roll the dice and add all add up all the numbers, because there is a mod for that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because we're doing the pick two with, you know, an effect die kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Having a bunch of extra dice to roll increases your probability that the two you pick will will have good numbers, mm-hmm. but it doesn't inherently guarantee that you're going to roll better. And for every die you put in, you have a one in X being however, whatever size die you put in a one in X chance of, of rolling a one and getting a hitch. So I actually like that. And it doesn't bump up against the plot point system. Cause if you roll, if you make a magic roll and spend some um, mana and you can still engage a plot point and all of that may not save you. It's true. The reason I wondered this sure. when I started thinking about it and why I do think it probably infringes a smidge on it is I have the distinction of frozen soul, not my own. So, I, and we all know that I have frost magic at my disposal. So anytime I want to, I can spend a plot point to create some sort of ice aspect on the table mm-hmm. or water aspect on the table. I can do some of that same stuff by spending a mana pool die. There uh, is you get a roll for it though. Not necessarily like my control lets me just do things. Oh, sure. Sure. Like, like I can just move water out of the way, do some other things like that. I don't necessarily have to roll. So there is some crossover and overlap, which when I was thinking about this, I wanted to get your guys' opinions. Actually, I'm Bob. I'm kind of curious as to your opinion, because when I thought about it and started staring at the rules, I'm like, I think I put some too much overlap here, but maybe not. It, like it works. Like we've been playing it and it works and I have no problem with it. And I haven't, there's like, you can't bust it or break it. And it does kind of make it feel different, but the plot point is so universally applicable that it crosses over to the mundane and the magic. Mm-hmm. Now, if we put a rule in there where you couldn't use plot points for certain magic things, that might help uh, distinguish them more. But I don't know that they're infringing on each other. I just think that it's the overlap is so great that it kind of messes with how the mana dice, the mana pool works and how the mana pool kind of infringes on the plot point a little bit. I don't feel like it's a problem. Um, I, I think the, the system works. Yeah. I don't think they're, they're bumping into each other. I don't think that like it, it hasn't been an issue for me. I think it was a well thought out idea that in practice is doing what it was supposed to do and it's making things very interesting at the table. So I'm fine with it. I see two things. Number one is I see magic as being 
like a free floating asset or as, or aspect on the table. So there are times when I've only got three dice to use, but now I've got my magic die because we're in a duel and I can spend that extra plot point to use it when it's necessary. But you don't have to spend a plot point to use your mana die. No, 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 no. But I mean, I can I can add that in. I can oh, use yeah, it. Yeah, as, I see what you're saying. It's a fourth die I can use to to build the plot the the the, the pool up. The second thing is. The control thing is a different issue because I think that control is one of the more powerful magical abilities in the game. Like I see, like I see many more uses of your control than for my enhance. I mean, I just haven't be- used. Be- I don't be- have the enhance ability. Otherwise, I'd be using it all the time. I don't know. I, I don't think that the, the enhance ability. I don't remember. Use I, I built. I, I put I know these that. together, so I have a pretty. In, I know that. I pretty know how they all work. I haven't seen the enhance being as useful as, as the control. If I if I built this character again, I probably would have taken control. That's as fair. Opposed, as opposed to enhance, I don't see enhance being as useful. I feel like uh, you can just buy some experience points and buy control. You can. I yeah, could, I could have. I didn't want to infringe on what what, what Chris was doing. You should just do it so that you can do your thing in a different way. I mean, yeah, Earth I is a uh, pretty control, useful, right? Yeah, control I, Earth could be yeah. a lot of fun. Oh yeah, I specifically built this character around the idea of trying hard not to. Like I was originally going to be flame, but when you said you were flame worth, I, I went, "I'll go Earth," and you took wind. Wind. Like I specifically built this character to try the game out and try to take things that the other that you guys yeah. didn't take. That was specifically because I wanted to try to play around with the rules. So that's fair. Yep. But the answer is still, I don't think it infringes on it. All right. We got one question left. Sure. The last question. What are some plot point mods or uses you'd like to see in Cortex? And we got one. Cause I don't have any. I, I don't. Do I do. Okay. Cool. Uh, there's one in the book called no bank. So the no bank mod is an optional mod. Uh, players earn plot points when the GM spends a plot point on a GM PC. So I don't get a stack. Like I don't get like four, you know, tokens for the GM PCs, but anytime in a, you know, head to head or challenge, whatever, like if I spend a point on my GM PC, I just give it to you. Mm -hmm. That's one where like, if we were doing a supers game and wanted that, like, you know, big ebb and flow kind of thing, it'd be like, Oh, I'm definitely spending a plot point so that I can resist your punch, but here's that plot point for, you know, a future SmackDown. Is that the only way to get plot points in the no bank? No. I'm like, I would not want to do that at all. What it does is it frees me from having a limited currency. Got it. But in return, what it does is every time I spend, it just goes to you guys. I wouldn't use it in every game. It would be bad in our Children of the Shroud game. Yeah. We have scale in our game. Yes. And we have also a lot of dice that come out on the table. Yeah. If I was doing something really super, like if I was literally doing super, sure. I think no bank mod would be fun. I mean, we are playing sort of a, a minor. I'm talking about game. like straight up yeah, superheroes, right? Yeah. I would do no bank. I, I just want to throw out, cause this is the discussion we had when we talked about this a long time ago, like 24 episodes ago or 26 episodes ago, when we were setting this game up. Yeah. Uh, we are using scale in our game. We are, which means you can have multiple dice for, uh, for a person that's of higher skill than everybody else that they can roll and then add in extra dice to their dice pool automatically. Yes. If you had no bank, you could just spend plot points to add effect dice and extra dice and give them to us, of course. But you could have a 10 die die pool oh, I, and use every die. Now, correct. I'm not saying that you would, but mechanically you could. Oh, absolutely. And that's actually a problem for the design of the game, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's all I'm saying. Like, Yeah, that takes scale and throws it way over the I, top. I would say as long as you didn't have scale in your game, then the no bank thing is probably okay to use. So this is where, this is where, and I think we talked about this in an early, early episode. There are these weird um, incongruencies where certain mods don't butt up nicely against each other. And the, there's too many mods to, for the game to warn you. Like mm-hmm. there are places in the book where, where Cam does warn you like, oh, if you, if you take this mod, you need to modify this, like 
you need to either not have this mod or modify this mod. There are a couple cases where that has occurred because, you know, he's had his experience in it. But if you just grab no bank, like you said, and then grab scale or whatever, and you think about it, right, there's like a, like a, there's a part where it gets like really broken because I can generate really big dice pools yep. and then start buying my way into successes pretty much at you, will. You could legitimately take somebody out with one hit. Yeah. Everybody hear me out. If he has 10 dice, he super hits one of us and he buys three effect dice. It blows through the arcane shield, blows through our normal thing, and then hits us again and takes us out. And yeah. then he could just kill us with one roll yeah. without us ever getting to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I'm Which saying. Which wouldn't be fun, right? Like, no, no, and, no. And that's why, that's why when you're picking mods and it's, and again, it's hard to do, you know, in session minus one, but when you're picking mods, you got to kind of think about, do the mods make sense for the story that you're trying to tell? Mm-hmm. And then do the mods fit with the other mods that you have? And some of that you're going to know in advance. And some of that you may accidentally discover when you hit the table and be like, Ooh, I need to modify this mod. Now in a game with low dice pools. Yeah. Like initially, like where you're like three to six die or, or like where you would normally live for your die pool. No bank is great because sure. you're giving everybody plot points constantly yes. and they're using, they're able to spend plot points to do things to like create assets at the table so they can yes. have slightly bigger dice pools so they can get stuff done. Yeah. That no bank is, is good if you want like a huge amount of plot points just flowing around the yeah. table with. Yeah. In my long live the queen game with Senda, the one of the mods that we use is her initial starting plot points are higher. So she starts the game with three plot points, sure. no matter what, um, which basically represent that uh, she plays her main character, but she has two NPCs that we kind of share narrative control over mm-hmm. that are like her support team. So it technically represents each one of them contributing a plot point, mm-hmm. but she starts the game with three plot points because like you guys, if you all start with one, your side of the table has three plot points. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, that's a tiny mod that we added to our one player game was just to start her with more plot points. It's also in the book. Yeah. I think they do mention yeah, that. Right? You can start with more plot points. Yeah. yeah that, that is a mod, right? Is, is initial starting plot points. Mm-hmm. Like I could start you guys with more plot points. Mm-hmm. Anybody else going? Not off the top of my head. No, yeah, man. I, I, uh, there's not really, I, I think the, the plot point game is so robust as it is. I can't think of a mod that I would use. I mean, I like the idea. If if I was playing a Star Wars game, I would have a bank of plot points in the middle that were light side, dark side. I mean, then you're getting close to like Doom Pool stuff, which I also like. Yeah. I will say that um, mimicking something from uh, X-Crawl. In X-Crawl, there is a currency called Mojo, which is like your team's mojo. Mm-hmm. And the trick to it is you can never spend it on yourself. One of your teammates has to give it to you. So you could have a plot point thing where you have a mojo pool and you can't take it. But Bob's like, Chris, man, I believe in you and like flings you a point for your next role. Oh, man. I was just thinking about the Star Wars. If I was going to play Cortex Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, good. Cortex Star Wars would be super interesting. And we and we had that light side, dark side plot pool, plot point pool in the middle. What I would do is because the thing that I hated about the um, the one with the I think that was a fancy flight one where they would flip them. Mm hmm is that somebody could stack them to the point where they wouldn't flow back the other way. Yeah. And I thought that was a stupid rule. The way that I would do it is like the light side and the dark side are always ebbing and going back and forth. So whenever it gets full on one side and you put like four or five in there, I, I, I like five. Five is a good number for that. If nobody spends a plot point within like a round of whatever or, or, or some like on the next roll, on the next, next roll, the next couple of rolls, it just starts shifting. 
Yeah, or some event, or it resets some event happens. So, yeah, some like yeah, it resets, or if it's light side too much, like the the it gives the game master the uh, authority to intrude in some way yeah, to yeah. start drawing them exactly. back. Like, yeah, yeah. That'd be interesting. That'd like, be a cool idea. Yeah, right. Because then I, the dark, because that's how the light side, the dark side work. They I, flow back and forth. I think that's super cool. Yeah, also that'd be fun. would also say that a Star Wars Cortex game would also be super fun. I think so. I think Star Wars is a great. And and Cortex kind of go together. I, I really 100% think they, agree. The game scales well. The, yep. Like we we played with the ship combat. I'm just I'm rifting now. No on other no things. no. Don't get me wrong. If somebody if somebody was to turn around and be like, I've got an idea for a Star Wars Cortex campaign, I would I would be listening. I might think about. It. I mean, it's it's not a it's nothing I could ever sell. I'd have to give it away for free. Oh which no would no be no. Fine. We can't. I think I get yelled at even for just getting it out there for free. I no, think there's like a fan is, license. This in is there. literally just for us. Yeah. Like if somebody was like, hey, home, just to play. home game. Well, I would want I would want people to see it, right? Like I would want to give sure. it. Sure. Oh, I think you could just post it up and yeah. just be like, look, if you posted it and did not generate any money, if you posted it somewhere and was like literally like. This is just fan-made fan stuff. I, I think you're pretty okay. You know, unofficially, just noodling in my head, if I were going to run Star Wars with Cortex, I would probably take these I, mods, put them together, and then do this. And I, hypothetically. I think there's some license out there that you can't do that, though, which is why all the Star Wars games that exist are all hidden. Yeah. I, I, again, I think, I think Star gotta, Wars actually like locks that that thing down hard. I, I don't know because I mean Star Wars, Savage Star Wars. There are like three versions of them, and they're easy sure to find. you can find them, but people don't claim ownership to them usually, and usually, and you often know, they get shut down. If I wanted to play know, a game in Cortex where I was playing Space Wizards with, with light swords, <laughs> yes, you just call yeah, it something. Just else. file the serial numbers off. Yeah, I'll still call. It. I mean, listen, if we're playing it around the table for us, it's just Star Wars. It's fine. And it like, you would could use us to play Star Wars. Anyways, uh, that's all I got. Are we, we good? You want to move on? Yeah, let's do the yeah, thing. Right, well, that's all for our Cortex plot points. The bit that happened one more time. Unless you want to do the uh, misdirected word scramble. Anyway, that's all for our Cortex plot points primer. We hope that you'll tune in next week for another episode of our actual play, The Children of the Shroud. So uh, what do you guys think we should talk about in our next primer? I would love to eventually see us do a primer on some of the mods and rules yeah that sounds like a good idea thank you for listening to misdirected mark plays now let's do some patreon shots before we get out of here let's start with the royal court ty prunty known as lord timemonger lars henrik evjan the lord out of time jim the royal merchant emeritus chromatic chameleon the queen's spy mistress jt evans the queen's librarian schmitty the keeper of the labyrinth andrew dacey the warden of whiskeys john carney the court necromancer Craig, the Lord of One Name, Tiberius Starcrash Smith, the Baron of Britannia, Eric Bontz, the Were-Gator, and Kevin Lovecraft, the Royal Beard. Other patrons include Chris Constantine, Miko Froilich, Eric Simon, Not That Billy Mitchell, Fiona, Huxley, Kathleen Halpern, Christopher Gamelk, Michael Becca Sperm, Joseph Knoll, Carlos, Heptilemma, Michael Draper, Alice Kira, Jim Fitzpatrick, Brantley Harris, Steve Radabaugh, Rory McLeod, Ninjabi, Richard Wyatt, Joseph Peralta, Brian Kurtz, my Brett, not my Brett, but somebody's Brett, Chris Steele, Jared Rasher, Eileen Barnes, and Brandon Barnes. Thank you so much for being our patrons. If you'd like more content like this, you can check it out at misdirectedmark.com. If you are interested in supporting the show and other shows on Misdirected Mark Productions, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMP. You can get a whole bunch of stuff there, including 
extra bonus podcast episodes, material concerning this game, The Children of the Shroud, that includes character sheets, our game rules, some of our setting stuff, and Phil's thoughts from behind the screen. If that's not your thing, then you can just tell a friend about us. We'd greatly appreciate it. If you're looking for other podcasts to listen to, there are a variety of shows on our network. You can check out Panda's Talking Games with Phil and Senda, where they talk about all kinds of game stuff. The Gnomecast, where a bunch of gnomes get together to talk about gaming topics to avoid being thrown in the stew. And Thaco with Advantage, where Ange and Jared talk all about D&D. They're going to talk about it anyway, so why not record it? If that's still not enough content for you, we have a number of other podcasts that we recommend and are friends with. The Tabletop Bellhop, your board game concierge. The Knights of the Night, an excellent AP podcast. Mastering Dungeons, where they talk all about D&D if you want some more D&D stuff. And How to RPG with Sean P. Kelly. You can catch that on YouTube. He's live on Saturday mornings. I'm often in the chat room there. Well, this has been a Misdirected Mark production. The media arm of Encoded Designs. Mic drop. We out.